I started this, this personal challenge, and I don't know how long I'll last on it, but it's kind of like, I just thought, what if we could go through the whole um, Paul's letter to the Romans, you know? And so we've, we covered chapter one, and, uh, and, so I'm, and then last week, we talked about the, the power of the gospel, but I put it in the context of all the challenges that we're facing in our culture now. But, I'd, you know, the challenges in, that we have around us it's really explained in Romans chapter one. When a culture turns away from God, refuses to acknowledge and honor him, it, th- without even knowing it, the truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And so then, then this displeasure of God allows sinful people just to continue in their sin. It gets further and further away. It gets more and more crazy. Why would Paul write this to the Romans who he'd never met? Because they are right in the center of the empire. And it's really apropos for what we're experiencing, not just in America, but around the globe of a, of a, it seems like a culture that has turned away from God. But in the midst of that, God has powerful people and he's going to turn the tables on the ones who have turned their back on him. And so, so we just, you know, but we don't, we want to understand it. We don't want to become angry or offended. We want to be ambassadors of Christ. And so today we're going to dive in to chapter two and the other danger, the way we can actually suppress the glorious good news of the gospel is by becoming offended and legalistic and trusting that we're, we're good because we know about God. And so just let's pray together. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts, open our minds? Would you equip us with the eternal word of God? Would you actually recreate in us an understanding and a perspective of our identity and our assignment in this world today. Amen, amen. So, you know, just to a little bit of review, Romans uh, 1.16, I mean, the the whole, you know, the letter Paul wrote is to, to explain the gospel to this amazing strategic church in Rome that he had never been to, but he wanted to go to. And so it just happens that it's an outpouring of, of kind of this broad view of all that's involved in the gospel. But he says in, gospel, in verse 16 of chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, even though he'd suffered and been shipwrecked, because it's the power of God for salvation, to set free, to heal, to restore, to recreate to everyone who believes. And so if you trust, if you believe, then you're, you know, you are a recipient of this amazing grace of God to the Jew first, also to the Greek, and the righteousness of God, God's loyal love, is released and revealed in the gospel from faith for faith. And and so God in the gospel reveals that he's the original promise keeper. And sometimes we make a mistake. We, We confuse the law of Moses with the promise God made to Abraham. 
And when we think that Christ fulfilled the law and the law was set aside, it's the law of Moses, which was a conditional covenant made by people who didn't want to have a face-to-face -face relationship with God, but just wanted to tell us what to do and we'll do it. And, uh, and so, you know, trying to keep the rules never works. And so that, you know, that contract was broken and so it was set aside. But the promise was never set aside that, that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in Christ, every, you know, the promise is fulfilled. And as we're brought into Christ, we become heirs of the promise. Come on. So it's good to understand because sometimes when we, when we see, read Paul talking about the law and we think like, well, I don't need the Old Testament at all. No, we need it all because God is still keeping promises that he made in Genesis chapter three. <laughs> and he hasn't changed his mind about what he said in Genesis chapter one and two. Okay, so um, it's, and the gospel is actually the unveiling of the faithfulness of God. It, that at the center of the universe exists the, before anything was created, there was a community of love, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a family relationship, and we're brought into it in Christ. Love is central to our freedom. God is love, and we need to remember that, especially when we're tempted with the temptation of judgment in a condemning kind of judgment. Obviously, we want to discern, we want to recognize what's going on, but we don't want to just write people off and write situations off. God is good. Amen? Were any of you sinners before Jesus caught you? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, so let's, this will bring us you know, it's, it's, we can fall out of love in all kinds of ways. We already covered how, you know, people that turn their back on the revelation of God's existence and his divinity and power that we've found in nature. This is Romans 1, 18, 19, 20, and follows. And once you turn away, it just gets worse and worse. And God, and the wrath of God is revealed, not just the, the faithfulness of God, but wrath, God's wrath isn't like our wrath. God doesn't beat us up. He just lets us do what we want to do, which has its consequences. Okay, so, and there's more to it than that. I'm just hitting this all in broad strokes. But, but the, when any time that truth, a truthful revelation, an accurate revelation of the character and knowledge of God happens, it's a suppression of truth. And, and so now we run into the second temptation, which is the temptation not to turn our back on God, but to, to reduce the relationship to rules that we follow and feel good about ourselves because we're the best rule keepers. And so this is another kind of suppressing the truth, misguided moralism. Morality is awesome, but misguided moralism or legalism creates division and polarity. And we can look at our culture and say, man, is it divided. And do you know, I mean, because, because legalism isn't just confined to Christians and Jews, you know, the atheists have their own kind of legalism. Have you noticed that? <laughs> like, like, you know, you're a hater if you don't agree with them. Come on, give us a break. All right, so Romans chapter two, verse one. And, and now Paul is, 
he's specifically, he's covered, you know, he's answered the question like, man, if you were here in Rome, Paul, you don't know how crazy, what a zoo this is. There's no right or wrong. Everything's going on. And so he answers that question pretty much in the last half of, of chapter one. But now in, in Romans two, he turns to, I know there's a lot of people that were brought up in the covenant, in the Jewish family, in the Jewish tradition, and they feel like they're fine. And what Paul is actually doing is he's exposing the legalistic mentality. He's actually, he's beginning to expose what he'll He'll further unpack in Romans chapter seven, right here in chapter two. And so he turns and he just starts out, he's so friendly, Romans chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on the other, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. <laughs> and so what is he doing? It's, it's a weird thing. You know, sin tempts us to judge doesn't it? Like, you know, you just, oh, I won't even tell you all my temptations to judge. But, and, and then, because when we're around sin, it makes us miserable. And so we judge, and, you know, it's good to judge the sin, that it is sin, but when we judge the people, we ourselves become miserable because when we judge, we get judged. Have you ever known any really miserable, legalistic Christians? It's not just confined to Jews. In fact, I've met some, I've met some high, or, or, you know, Hasidic Jews that were, I mean, I don't agree with their theology, but I agree with their joy. You know, they're celebrating God, and I'm saying, God, I want to I want to not be focused on what's wrong with other people. I want to be focused on what's beautiful about the grace of God. We were singing it today. It, and that last song, man, it just got me wrecked. <sighs> Any song that sings about my sin on his cross and his blood given for me, it wrecks me. I mean, I can't, because it's real, and this is what, like, could we focus on this instead of listening to talk radio and getting mad about this bad thing and that dysfunctional thing that's being done by the government or by somebody else that we put in the category? If we can eliminate the categories because love unites. Okay, anyway, so, but why do we do that? Because here's the thing, when I judge, I get judged and judgment makes us all miserable. So you can almost measure a community by how much judgment's in it, by how unhappy they are, which is really interesting because so joy becomes an indicator of the presence of God's grace in a family, in a community. Just saying. Okay, so why? We have no excuse. Help me, God. It, I mean, isn't that, that's like pretty strong language. Verse two, we know that the judgment of God rightly fall. Why would Paul know this? Because he was the worst of the worst. He was the most intense, most demonized by judgment and pointing of the finger of anybody compared to anybody who would read this letter, including you. All right. So we know, and he knows firsthand, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. 
Well, how does he know? Because it happened to him. And it's done in truth. It, you know, truth doesn't discriminate. Truth is truth. It's reality. And there is no such thing as your truth and my truth. Postmodernism is incoherent. Okay, just in case you know, even know what that is. Verse three, do you suppose... Oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape. So here's a false supposition that I'm going to judge people, do the same thing myself in secret, or I just kind of, and that I'm going to escape the same judgment. It comes, you know, we used to say it's kind of, you know, it's not accurate theology, but we used to say what goes around comes around. This is, it's like, so when I judge, I get judged. Okay, and so, ah, and so I don't want that. And here's the whole thing, that that kind of like legalism misses the point of God's mercy, goodness, and kindness. Verse two, or do you presume, or that New American Center says, think lightly, and other translations say, do you despise the riches, this is God's riches, of kindness, forbearance, and patience, kindness, Every human being, whether they know God or not, has experienced God's kindness. Did any of you ever have your life seemingly miraculously spared while you were a sinner and a rebel? Anybody? Nobody's raising their hand? Man, I mean, over and over and over again, horses, motorcycles, uh, you know, being in the wrong place at the wrong time, all these things, I know I should have been dead or in prison. And for some reason, I was alive and still able by my own free will to meet Jesus. <laughs> and so, the, uh, you know, so I don't want to presume, his kindness is the goodness that God, it's like providential goodness that, that God is good to the just and the unjust. Okay, the, his forbearance is this really interesting word. It means not reacting. And it, forbearance, the, the word, you know, the conceptual picture of forbearance is there's a powerful king who could just stomp out anything he wanted, big, you know, big military power. And there's some little rebel kingdom nearby that is making all kinds of insults and stuff like that. And they tell the big powerful king, and he just says, ah. You know, so, so his kindness is the good that we get that we don't deserve. His forbearance is that he doesn't react to our stupidity and rebellion. Thank you. Isn't he good? He's so kind. When I was 16, I was spent, you know, I know it was late on a summer night. I was there with with this other rebel friend of mine, and we were trying to decide if there's God or not, and we weren't sure. He grew up in a religious family, so he was pretty sure there wasn't a God. I was kind of involved in Eastern religions and reading books by Alan Watts and you know, trying to take chemical compounds that could expand my um, universe and, and make me crazy. And, uh, and so we're, we're discussing this, and I go, I don't know, I don't even think there is a God. I don't know why I said that. I walked out in the middle of the highway. It was a country highway, so no traffic. Looked up at the sky, and I said, God, if you're there, just strike me down now. I'm, you know, I'm, I am a beneficiary of God's forbearance. <laughs> like, he is too stupid to even bother reacting. 
But see, so, and then his patience is that he waits, he waits, he waits, he waits until the day of judgment. He, he puts it off as long as he can because that, that's his heart. Thank you, God. And so, obviously, I was thinking lightly and not thinking at all about the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience. And, not, and I totally didn't know that God's kindness was meant to bring me to repentance. Hallelujah, it did. Thank you, God. How many know that even though we could be stupid, he's bigger than our stupidity? Jesus, thank you. Thank you. This gives us hope for people that we think are beyond hope. You know, look at those dirty hippies. Yeah, look at them. A lot of them are preaching all over the world now. Okay, this, you know. And there, there is a generation that is currently in captivity to sin and God sees something worth their, in each of their lives. And he's about to do something about it. Anyway, verse six. I, okay, I'm, I'm gonna make it. Okay, I have to make it to the end of the chapter. Okay, so verse six. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. We all obey something. As Bob Dylan saying, you gotta serve somebody. They obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. And there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Ah, that's terrible. Verse 10, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Why? Because he's just. But here's, this is confusing because we think, wait a minute. You mean if I do good, I'm saved? No. He's just saying, if you only did good, and we would, you know, we, Salvation is entirely by grace. It's a gift that we can't earn. But reward is by works. So what you do actually matters. I mean, this, Jesus taught this in Matthew 25 and many other places. It's all through the Bible that there is also a reward that we get for the works that we've done. Hey, you know, and so we, it matters. And that's why the Holy Spirit makes us zealous for good works. But Paul is arguing here. He's actually saying, look, if somebody only did good, they would, they would have eternal life. And, 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 and he also, I mean, he's encouraging that if we're seeking those things that are good, because many people that don't know God are actually seeking good, despite all my rebellion and stuff, I was mostly seeking good, which kind of sanctified me. I know people were praying for me, and there are people praying for those lost people now, for those leaders of rebellious movements. Come on. Man, you see them on TV, pray for them. Claim their souls, you know I mean? Just God, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so God, we do not want to make the mistake of creating enemies because when we were God's enemies, he sent his son to save us. How about that? That's called forbearance. Okay, so, um, so he's not, but salvation is by grace, works are, you know, there's reward for works, but what he's actually arguing is no one is perfectly good. Okay, and so verse, um, verse 14, he goes into this. Well, now he, he gets in verse 12, because we got to 11, he's, he, he's now introducing a paradox. Paradox is, is like 
there's two things that exist at the same time and they seem like they can't coexist, but they do. It's also two doctors married to each other. That's a joke. But anyway, they, uh, verse 12, I told you it was a joke just in case you wouldn't think it was true. Okay, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law because everyone has sinned, even the ones that do good. Okay, they, they don't do all good. If they've sinned without the law, they'll perish without the law, but all those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So there's actually a standard revealed to those who have light and law. Verse, and of course, he's writing to Jews, but it would, occur, it would also speak to people that are you know, familiar with the Bible, read the Bible, but aren't actually in relationship with God. Verse 13, for it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So here's what he's saying. Just knowing the law and not doing it doesn't work. See, verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law, not the whole law, but the work of the law is written in their hearts while their conscience also bears them witness and, and conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Verse 16, on that day. Now, that's a scary thought. On that day, <laughs> when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. And so, so what Paul is actually doing, he's trying to, he's trying to break up their, their false assumptions that I'm good. He's actually writing to people with Jewish background believers to say, well, we're good, you know, because we are circumcised on the eighth day and, you know, I've kept the law and even though I've received Jesus as my Messiah, I'm still... You know, I'm not sure about the, the Gentiles, if they can really be Christians, and because and, they're not, you know, I saw them eating pork chops last night, and so it's offensive to me. And what he's, he's actually saying is, look, nobody can keep the law, and yet there's some good in every person. And so, so many of you, 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 know, you work with awesome, wonderful people who are unbelievers, because there is a certain, like the the basic principles of God's law are a part of the image of God. And unless someone has been totally warped by a totally warped culture, they still, they're kind, they're nice. They're, and so sometimes we judge people like, well, I don't know if they're sinners or not. I have never met nicer people. But just being a nice person does not take care of the sin problem. That's actually a problem with God. Like God doesn't judge us on how nice we are. I mean, he does want us to be nice. Fruit of the Spirit is all things that make you happy and nice and kind and, and wise. But he's actually judging us on whether we have a living relationship with him. Because if we don't, we have at one point or another, we've turned our back on the message of all of nature. And then specifically, religious people can think, well, I know all the rules and I keep them. I'm good. But it's not true. It's, and that's what he's pointing out. And, why, and again, Paul knew this better than anyone. He was keeping the rules and he was demon-possessed. He was filled with hatred and frustration because you can't keep, make everyone else keep the rules. You need to meet the lawgiver and discover that there's a law above the ceremonial law of religion. <laughs> anyway, okay. And so... so um, Anyway, and it's a wild thought that there is a judgment day. 
You know, sometimes we don't preach this, but there is a judgment day where the secrets or the, the secret motivations, sometimes we're not even aware of them ourselves. And, but many things we are aware of, and we're thinking like, well, nobody knows about that, so it's okay. On that very last day, everybody's gonna pray. <laughs> and, and say, oh, the things whispered in the darkness will be revealed in the light. And so there will be a judging of the secrets of our heart. And, and so... Now, now Paul gets into this last portion, and he, starting with verse 17, and he actually identifies the false security that many legalists have. My, my father grew up in a very legalistic Mormon home. His great, great, or maybe his great grandfather, you know, came over, and both of them, actually, both of his great grandfather, or all four of them, however many you have as great grandfathers, they all came over to America in the 1850s. They were early victims of, of the cult uh, evangelism that was going on, and, they, and they, you know, they grew up there. And so my, my uh, I think my great-grandfather founded a little town in Idaho, which was a big deal, because that's how they did um, church planting by planting towns. But the uh, but my father rebelled against this and, and was judged and stuff, so he, he left home in his 20s, and he never practiced this religion, which I'm grateful for, because I just thought it, you know, at least I was a blank slate. <laughs> I didn't have to unlearn a lot of things. But when he got into his 60s, he died when he was 79. No, yep, that's right, 79. My mom died at 89. He died at 79. And in, the, in his last years, he got kind of worried about things, so he would go out and do Mormon church work, which was kind of like evangelism missions. He'd go visit people's houses, and he would, you know, why was he doing that? Because he thought if he kept the rules, it would help. And the hilarious thing is he was a chain smoker. He drank, all these things are sins in Mormonism, and he wasn't, but later in life, he was an alcoholic. When I grew up, he wasn't an alcoholic, but he drank, um, you know, like, at Christmas and stuff, not, not drunk, but just, he'd have, I never saw my father drunk, so, which I'm thankful for. He wasn't abusive, he was, but he was a sinner, and he was trying to be good, and I thought, this must be funny, he's going and doing this, this, uh, he's, some good Mormons picking him up, and, and my dad always smelled like an ashtray, you know, so just, <laughs> I thought, this is pretty funny. What, gloriously, six days before my, my father stepped into eternity, I got to spend time with him. He had a big crisis, almost died. And I said, Dad, you know you almost died three weeks ago. And he said, yeah, I know. He, he was from, the, he was born in 1913. That's how they communicated, you know. Yeah, that's what they tell me. And I said, well, Dad, if you died, where were you gonna go? This is like a really basic question. Fortunately, he had a theistic view of reality. He said, well, I don't know if I'll go up and be with the Lord or go down and be with the devil. Oh, that's a good start. And so then I, you know, just was able to lead him to Jesus on the Romans road, you know, just different verses in the book of Romans, and he accepted Jesus like a little child. And so what a, what a joy. <laughs> but, you know, so legalism doesn't work. His, his older brother, who is a big, big wig in that organization, came to his funeral, and I, and I shared his little testimony at his funeral, and his, his, my Uncle Merlin, man, if looks could kill, I would have dropped dead on the spot. He's like, 
how dare you say that? You know, I'm saying, yeah, he got saved because he accepted Jesus and he prayed and invited Jesus into his heart and gave his life to Jesus. And then I talked about the last three weeks of his life where he would sit on his bed and pray every night because my old younger brother's living there and that he would, and my brother would read Bible verses to him and he loved it. And he'd be looking for the Book of Mormon. I didn't share this part, but the Book of Mormon was sitting on this little stand right by this chair that he sat in those last days. And, and he would say, Ralph, wait, I don't know where I put the Book of Mormon. And Ralph recognized this must be the Holy Spirit. So he wouldn't say, it's right next to your dad. He'd just go, oh, well, you know, would you like me to read the Bible to you? He goes, yeah, I would. And so, like, you know, people that are lost in legalistic systems, they're sincere. They like, you know, they're after God. And I mean, but do you understand this translates not just Jewish people, not just people in, in a, a legalistic cult, but people like, you know, there's lots of nominal Catholics, lots of people, you know, you went to parochial school, you, you might've gotten confirmed, but nothing happened. You didn't have a relationship. You knew the rules. Or people grow up in, there's a lot of legalistic Anabaptist groups. <laughs> I don't want to get shot here, but you know, I mean, thank you. Well, Anabaptists don't carry firearms usually. So anyway, the, uh, but you know, there's, there's like, there's Amish legalism, there's conservative Mennonite legalism. And the thing is, there's Pentecostal and Baptist legalism too. We can be in legalism where it's so emphasized that we think if we're following the rules, we're good. And what Paul's saying here is, no, we're not. We need something else. And so he goes through and he, he, he cites these dangers. Verse 17, the danger of relying on our heritage. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, that's not enough. And even if you know about it, verse 18, knowledge is enough. And know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed in law, that's not enough. And then he says, you could even be a teacher, you could be a teacher in a Christian school. You could be a teacher in a pulpit. You know, I mean, I, it's amazing to me, and I love it when sometimes pastors will realize they don't know the Lord, and they'll come forward to an altar call, you know, right in their own church. I, it's just stunning. Verse 19, maybe I need to do that. I don't know. Pray for me. But no, I met Jesus in 1972. I think I, that, but I, every day I'm thankful for that relationship. Verse 19, and you who are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, instructor of the foolish, teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of truth. The law is good of knowledge and truth. Then, verse 21, you then who teach others, do not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? When you say you can't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And so he's just saying, look, is it really working for you? You're teaching this stuff, but is the power there that you, that are you still tempted by these things because there's something missing? Jesus, help us. And then ultimately, religious legalism dishonors the name of God. You who boast, verse 23, who, you who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, by hypocrisy. Verse 24, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Every time there's a big scandal, I just say, God help us to never lose relationship just because we're anointed or have a gift or, amen. And then the last one, this is really powerful. This is like really 
Roman seven territory, that you can have the signs of being in relationship with God, but no reality. Verse 25, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. It's the wedding ring of the covenant. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Then he goes on and says, when uncircumcised do the things that are of the law, they show that circumcision is a matter of the heart, not of the flesh. Amen. So, anybody want to come up and cry and say, God, forgive me for being a legalist? We'll, we'll have that opportunity here soon. But it's interesting. I, I hesitate to do that. I realize this isn't usually our culture that we talk about sin and judgment, but we need to because it's part of the whole truth. And uh, the... Um, but I want to tell you something. I don't know if it happened on Tuesday or Wednesday, but I was, it was in the morning, and I was awake. Thank God I was awake. And it was just a time where I, I, I'll spend time with the Lord, and sometimes it's a long time. Not because I'm holy, because I'm inefficient. You know, I just, like, <laughs> I start praying, I keep praying. <laughs> I can't pray for all the people I know, or whatever. But so I'm having one of these mornings that was a very average morning, and I wasn't really thinking about anything, just like, God, I'm here. I, I always welcome the Holy Spirit, ask him to fill me. I, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to make provision for my flesh to fulfill its lust, all those things. And I, I have this little, it's, it's a, a routine or a ritual. It's a rite of presenting myself to the Lord. It's a good thing. You'll be happy that I do this because you should see me if I didn't. But the... Uh, but what, so I'm just kind of going through the motions and out of the blue, God starts talking to me. And I was kind of like, it was one of those days where my mind was like exhausted. I'm not thinking about anything. And I want to share what he said because I think it's, it fits with the season we're in. Here's what he said. He said, be still and know that I'm God. Psalm 46, which is a psalm about the presence of God and the refreshing God, but it's also a song about the mountains are being removed and the oceans are, you know, it's turmoil. And, but in the middle of that, there's a river that makes glad the city of God. Verse 10, Psalm 46, 10, be still and know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And he's not done. So the next thing is that, so, you know, I'm just going, oh, that's nice. I have to be still. Like, I'm not processing this. I'm just hearing it. Next thing he says is, I am doing a new thing. Psalm 43, 18. Remember not the old things, for, you know, consider not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Verse 19, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it will spring forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And so I'm encouraged. I feel like God is declaring things. And I'm sure he's saying it to other people. But he's doing something new. And our challenge is not let the, don't let the past limit the future. And do we perceive it? that God would give us a grace to see the new thing that he's doing in the earth. The next thing he said is, I'm pouring my spirit out on all flesh. I will pour my spirit out on all flesh. Hallelujah. This is, you know, 
uh, Acts 2.17, where Peter is quoting Joel 2.28, you know, that I, in the last days, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see vision. Your old men shall dream dreams. And so he, he says, I am, I am pouring my spirit out. If, we're, if he's doing a new thing, we need a new outpouring and a new, and we've, you know, we've been seeing this hunger. We've been seeing this thirst for God, and God is responding by pouring out rivers in the wilderness. He's pouring out oceans of love, and he's empowering us for this new season. And I love, in, in Acts, it ends in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, set free, healed, delivered, forgiven from the sins, become a new person, saved from ourselves. Come on. Saved from self-absorption. Saved from judgments we've made against others. Saved from sin that we can't get free from. God is saying, everyone who calls on my name will be saved. This is a universal gift. Do you understand there are people calling on the name of the Lord who don't even know the Lord. They're just praying, Jesus, if you're there, will you help me? God, thank you that you're pouring your spirit out on all flesh. Okay, Quickly, because I, I don't want the nursery people to get discouraged. Um, <laughs> then he, he said, the, the fourth thing he said, they will know that I have done it. And this is, this is from Psalm 22, the great crucifixion and great victory psalm of the Messianic Psalm. Verse 31 says, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And I I just want to prophesy that there will be an awareness, not just here, but among our children, among this generation that, that the enemy is contending for, that they will be rescued and that they will know that he has done it. Thank you. And the last thing, why don't you stand up? The last thing he said is that he said, you will, you'll have a new assignment. I don't know what my assignment is. I, I don't think he's moving me away. And that's not, I just don't want people to be freaked out and go, oh no. But I want to say, I just think it's more than me. I think we're in a season where he's giving new empowerment. He's pouring out his spirit in fresh ways. He's revealing things as we, we're quiet, as we're, we become still and we know that he is God, that he will reveal himself, that he will that he was doing a new thing. He'll reveal the new thing and he'll give you new power for new assignments. In Jesus' name. So, okay. I just, I just want to make an invitation. If any of these, like you know, God, I need to get set free from legalism and judgment. There's grace here for that. If you don't know Jesus and you say, I have never, you know, I've never considered Jesus. I've, I've tried everything else. Or I tried it when I was a kid and it didn't work. And, and I'm just saying, today's the day to reconnect, to make the covenant to put that covenant ring on your finger, receive his robe of righteousness, receive his feast for you because he loves you. And today is also, it's a day for not just, it's getting set free, but it's a day for empowerment. It's a day to receive the new thing. And so I just want to invite you forward. If you struggle with, with anxiety, you struggle with 
with fear, you struggle with all these things, there's a new season and as he pours out his spirit on you, you're filled with confidence and joy. If you feel like I feel this, I wanna be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I wanna receive power from on high so I can be a witness wherever I go. I wanna shine like the sun in the midst of a crooked generation. There is grace here for empowerment on you and there's a release of new mantles. Some of you, you may say, I know there's something new, I don't know what it was. We'll just agree with you in prayer. God reveal what that new thing is in Jesus' name. Okay, so that's it. You can come forward if any of those are, you just, your heart is stirred. We wanna pray for you. There's a grace and anointing here. You need healing, you need deliverance. It's all here and it's all free, <laughs> hallelujah. So the rest of you, I know, uh, God be with you. May the grace of God, may the love of God the Father, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may the intimate and communion and empowerment of the Holy Spirit be active in your life this week as you carry the name of Jesus every place you go and you bring honor to his name. In his holy name, can we say amen? Amen. Isn't God good? Let's just, Anne wants to say something, okay. That shows he's really good. This isn't exactly tied into the altar call, but as Charles was giving his testimony uh, early in the um, sermon or the message, he told the, the story of how uh, he was very wayward. And the, um, a little more elaboration on this is one of the... <laughs> One of the lovely Christian ladies who worked on campus identified him. Um, she, she was a Christian and she said, I wanna pray for the worst kid. And she identified Charles as the worst kid. And she began praying. But then one step further, I found out when we became Christians that they gathered together and they had cottage prayer meetings because they were absolutely determined to stop Charles from becoming the pre student body president because they were in his high school because he was, they were afraid of his verbal influence, how he was influencing other, other students and children for evil. And they all gathered together to pray that this would not happen. And guess what? He became the president anyway. But there was a twist yep. that caused him to have to sit in the principal's office every day and then they, he couldn't do his wayward things. Does that sound a little familiar to you? That we are praying for people who are big mouths, influencing people for the wrong thing. But there is a power of a testimony here. The power of the testimony as he was speaking um, to to turn, to turn lives of people who are, who are articulate, people who are influencing people for wrong, and look what the Lord has done. And that was the last phrase, look what the yeah, Lord has done. Lord so has done. thank you, Jesus, that you can change anybody's heart. That's our prayer. You can change anybody's heart. It's the, test, the power of the testimony. Do it again, Lord. Do, Do it, it again. again.
Amen. Yeah. And continue coming yeah. forward for your new yeah. assignments and yeah, all the different forward, things. New assignment, fresh outpouring, fresh empowerment for a new outpouring of the Spirit and, and power for evangelism, power to share, power to, to just accidentally walk into miracles and divine appointments. All this grace is here. So come, come, come. And the rest of you, bless you. If you have little children, go immediately to the childcare and thank those wonderful people that are ministering to your children. Okay. And then you can bring them back. Amen.